Hi, I'm Stephen Jolly, the host of Melbourne Calling. In the latest episode, we're interviewing Brendan Dover and Lawrence Quinn, who are two Australian Army war vets. They fought in Afghanistan. They're going to talk about their pretty full-on experiences over there. And their fight for justice now for those vets who are suffering from PTSD and against the massive wave of suicides that we're seeing amongst war vets in Australia. They're killing themselves at the rate of one a fortnight. It's pretty horrific. The Royal Commission, what they're hoping to see out of that. It's a fascinating episode. I really hope you enjoy it. Episode 8, Melbourne Calling. Brendan Dover, Lawrence Quinn, thanks for coming on the latest episode of Melbourne Calling. We wanted to talk about the Royal Commission that the government's just announced in April about this. Um, it's a scandal, really, isn't it? I mean, you're getting 500 vets have topped themselves since 2001. You've got, that's about basically two a month. Um, the rate of suicides in the Australian Army is higher than in the British Army by about 40%. Um, it's a national scandal. And uh, first up, just congratulations to you and everyone, uh, all the vets who have been pushing really, really hard for this, this Royal Commission. Um, can we just start off just with a bit of a backstory about yourselves? Like, Lawrence, wh how old were you when you decided to join the military? What, what, what was going through your head when you made that decision? Uh, I was finished school, got to, uh, went to Swinburne Uni for about, for a little bit. So you're a Melbourne boy, yeah? Melbourne boy, grew up yeah. in Melbourne. Um, grew up just in a, in a city sort of area. Went down to Swinburne Uni, started there, studying a fire technology course, wanted to be a firefighter. Uh, met quite a few sort of fireys or people who were... It's really hard to get in the fireys. I found that out. I'm not in there, so yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it is. Um, and basically, yeah, they all said, "Mate, you got no chance. You're 18." So I said, "What's a what's a good alternative um, to get that experience up?" And they said, "Go travel the world. Didn't have the money for that. Go get a good degree. Like medicine wasn't smart enough for that. Or join the military, and they'll give you all the skill sets we're looking for." So went down to DFR and joined uh, joined the Australian Army. A lot of people think that most people in the army are from like regional and rural Australia. Like you're a city boy. Yeah. What yeah. percentage would you say of city kids from Sydney, Melbourne, Perth, whatever, were in the army? Were they mainly kids from the city or from I'd regional? Say so. Yeah, I, I came across quite a few. Yeah. Um, it was never hard catching up with people when I came back on leave. There was always plenty of people around. So probably yeah. is a little bit out of uh, out of whack in regards to percentage. Probably the country probably still about sixty five percent. I think they probably come from. The country, but there's enough out there in the, uh, from the city blokes that um, definitely join up. So, Brendan, where were you brought up, and what made you decide to join the military? I grew up in Geelong, so um, I've got a family history of, of military service. Uh, so I went to university, went to Deakin University, Bachelor of Commerce, and then I moved to Melbourne uh, shortly after that. So I worked for Westpac, and then a company called Mallon and Superannuation. So I was a bit of an older guy when I joined the army. I was 24 years of age. So. Um, I was a bit of a granddad. Most people join the army, 18, 19, they're looking for a bit of purpose in life. But um, I had some years' experience behind me before I decided to go down that path. So um, at the age of 24, um, you know, I was still relatively fit. Um, I had a bit of a crossroads in the, in the career. The company decided to sell out of Australia and I just had a choice to stay in accounting or continue the family legacy. And unfortunately, there was no one else within our family and my cousins decided not to go down that path. So as the oldest, I probably took a little bit of... Um, a bit of responsibility to continue that family legacy and, and decided my time was time was up and I think it um, also coincided with um, September 11 attacks as well so in regards to you know, working in a, in a tower in Melbourne City working in uh, I was in triple three Collins Street and then to see a plane crash into a building like that and, and decimate so many other people who were just going about their daily life so and then 
obviously the, the attack was in, not most of the attack, but the defence was in, uh, centred around Afghanistan, so I think it was a good time to join the defence force. So one, there was a, a very good cause to do so, and also to carry the defence legacy. So there were those two reasons, and with, with you, was it the same, or was it just because of what you said before? I mean, was yeah, there I, a political motivation? No, there was no political motivation. I think um, it was probably a familiar concept to me. I didn't have that family yeah. sort of history there. And, um, so you're the first in your family that's joined the military? No, I've, I've had, you know, I've got um, all the major conflicts, sort of someone's represented. Um, but, yeah, Is that a thing, that, that, that you get a lot of kids, people joining the army that are from a military background, a military family, I should say? Yeah, I'd, I'd probably say so, yeah. yeah. I'd, I'd say it's a pretty high percentage, would you? Yeah. I know in construction where I work, often you get... Like like a like a rigger, their parents, their dad will have been a rigger, their brothers will have been yeah. in the same industry yeah. or are in the same industry. Is it? Yeah. The same? I never thought of I that. I think before. so. A lot, yeah. lot, lot of the biggest thing around, it, I think, is when you know, especially when your grandfather or or, or other uh, relatives, uh, great uncles and stuff like that, were talking about it. You know, when you're talking to kids, you don't talk about the bad things that happened in war. You mm. try and you talk about the mates. You see them with other mates, and they're always smiling and laughing. So you get you see the better side of it through your family, and that's passed on to the children. So you always think when you join, it's going to be like that. But then, unfortunately, you see the other side of war and, and the defence force that you know, people don't talk about very often that we'll probably come across some of the conversations today. Yeah, yeah, well, definitely. But just, just, to, just to start from the beginning, so you, you were 24, you go to yep. boot camp. Was yep. that harder for you than, say, an 18-year-old? Um, yeah, it probably would be in regards to by the time you're 24 and I was an accountant, I was a fully qualified accountant by that stage. So you're used to having money and freedom. Um, and then all of a sudden you're in a room with eight other blokes, you have your head shaved, you, you flush a moony at the doctor, and then all of a sudden you're getting yelled at, you know, uh, So is it like a full metal day. jacket? Like, is it sort no, of... it's not as bad, but, yeah, um, yeah obviously they're, they're trying to instill discipline in you from, from day one. So it's, um, it's, 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 um, you know, it's very um, system-orientated, so you go from one process to another to another. Yeah, the hairdresser, go get your clothes, get your uniform, get your very process driven. So it's you know it's long, long days. You know you get off the bus and then you're there at you know, seven or eight o'clock in the morning, and then you're, you're working till ten o'clock that night, and it's all go 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 go. And then in the morning, six o'clock in the morning, you got people yelling at you, and it's a, it's an eye opener. So that side of it wasn't too bad of it. You, always, you I think when you're a bit older, you you, you take that into consideration. You know what's sort of coming. You, you sort of ask people. You can. I had family that I could. I could ask them what their experiences like, and they laughed about the old asbestos buildings and stuff like that. And they were they were um, they were put through. So then, I sort of knew it was coming. But in regards to you know, you're not having your weekends, you're not having any interaction with your family or friends. It takes adjustment. So uh, there's there's harder things in regards to the financial and, and freedom. That's harder. But when you're 18 and you need that little bit of a push and, and driven, it's, it's probably a bit different to someone like myself. What about you, Lawrence? I mean. You said you went to Swinburne. Everyone I know from Swinburne is a total stoner. Like, uh, <laughs> you know, you come from you come from maybe a different background than you came from in Geelong. Yeah. Military background. You know, you're you're at Swinburne, inner city university. The next minute you're in a boot camp. That yeah. would have been a huge change. I'd it was a, yeah, like, it was a culture shock for me. I'd say. Yeah. Um, I was sort of. I was expecting. I was expecting it. Like you know, I'd spoken to older guys and um, got some good advice and stuff. But hearing it and doing it, it's two different things. So, yeah. I um. Yeah, it was a culture shock for me. I was sort of, I think I had long hair and like, you know, loved my phone like everyone my age at the time did. And How old were you when you joined? Uh, I was 18, 18, 19, 18. Had you used a gun before? Like had you been trained with uh, that? Not, not heaps, not yeah. heaps, like here and there growing up. But um, 
but it wasn't a familiar thing for me. No. What was the hardest thing for in terms of when you first joined? Yeah, probably the shock of the pace of it. Um, just the shock of the no debt downtime. That's what um, that's what got me. And, and the I think uh, you know a lot of the a lot of the things that you take for I guess as rights or whatnot, the ability to call your mates or to you know I don't know whatever, they're taken away from you. Um, so just adjusting to that. Um, it's all for a reason. It's all for a purpose. So you've got that motivation behind you, but that doesn't mean it happens overnight. You still need to have that adjustment. So I think so everyone is sort of shocked. Everyone's going to take yeah. it. Everyone's got different backgrounds. And then all of a sudden you throw on 80 people in a, in a platoon and train them up. So everyone's going to have different backgrounds and what they take. But I remember getting on the bus, uh, leaving from Melbourne, just on Collins Street in the bus on the way there. And it was, it was a young bloke there. He was, only, he was only 19, but he already had the shaved head. He went and got himself prepared and did those sorts of things. But he'd seen Forrest Gump. So he, he, <laughs> he packed 24 packets of toothbrushes thinking he was going to be on the toilet cleaning the toothbrush. <laughs> he goes, he didn't want to brush his teeth with, with dirty toilet paper. And I was, <laughs> I'm so sure it's not going to happen, mate, but we'll see how it goes. So I'll, everyone prepares uh, different. So, 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 so when, you, when you get into boot camp and you do your basic training, how long is it before you're allowed out, like get a weekend off and go back to see your family, your girlfriend, whatever it might be? I think um, they give you a day trip after 55 days. So, yeah, so it's a serious a amount of time you're away from everybody. Yeah, it's correct. Yeah, you get a yeah. day trip into to Wagga, um, which is the local township. So you'd you be dropped off by the bus at, say, 10, and then you're back on the bus at 4. And that gives you the chance to go buy supplies and refresh a bit, call your friends. But most people don't, because it's only six hours away, or six hours open, and you don't really tell your family and friends to come over during that period. You just go and um, just try and enjoy yourself, but no alcohol or anything like that. And then um, I think the weekend before the march out, they let you out for a, a Saturday or for a night and see how you behave. Test you, um, test you out a bit, check out your discipline, and then, and then obviously you march out, and away off you go after 80 days. So, so when you finished your basic training, when you got out after your 55 days, did you feel very different to your rest of your mates that you had before you went in? Like, was there a different attitude? Did you feel, I mean, you must have felt like you'd been through a totally different experience than what they'd ever been through. Yeah. Um, I was probably just glad it was over. Did it, did <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just a bit of relief, yeah, yeah. Yeah. not so yeah. much that you, you think you're any superior to any of your other mates or anything like that different, so you just more the fact you want to see them. You know, yeah. it's been it's been three months that you put away for isolation. A lot of time you've been catching up on footy sports or footy scores second hand or what your mates have been doing. So mm. you're more interested in seeing them than, than feeling different. Yeah, I think I, I felt pretty proud as well. You know, being part of um, being part of the ADF, I felt like I could achieve something. Like it's just really short space of time, so you get back and you sort of you feel like you've done all of this sort of stuff, and you have. Um, you've got, you know, you feel like you're part of something now, a big, something bigger than yourself, and you go back and your mates have, you know, it's 80 days later, really, or however long, if it's a couple of months, four or four months or something, and you're like, what have you guys done? Um, so you I think I was a bit arrogant about it at yeah. first, yeah. And you're still in a, in a period of learning as well, so that's obviously yeah. your basic training, and then you're about to transition to the specific training for your core, so mm. you're still in a very, uh, you're still in a learning environment, so it's not like a university or anything like that, it's a unique... Um, learning experience, but you're still in a learning stage. So, Brendan, let me talk me through that. So, you, you go through basic training, and then yep. you, you've end, then later in the piece, you've ended up in Afghanistan. So, yep. link link those two together. So, after your basic training, what did you specialise in? Yeah, so I went to artillery. So we went back to artillery. Yeah, yeah. Come back here to Pakistan. So that was a six weeks uh, course, and then straight from there off to Darwin. So during that time, you, you pretty much get told where you're going in Australia. You're not quite sure where you're going to be or where you're going to be living or who you're going to be going 
whiff. So then all of a sudden you'll just get a bit of form and says, right, you're going, you know, recruit over, you're going to this location. So, and then off you go. So and then from there, um, you know, in, in my core and artillery, you've got a transition period. So you start on the guns, you learn the, you learn the aircraft at the guns. If you're successful with that and want to transition, then you go to the command post and you learn signals for that way. So I did that transition and then I went to what's called the hill. So that, that's where you learn to become a forward observer. So that's, you know, that's a good two years of course I was coming back from Papapanyul or um, Townsville. So, so what does forward observer mean, just for so, those watching? Yeah, so our, our job is to call in close air, close air support, um, artillery fire, obviously mortar fire and attack helicopters. So our job is obviously to provide um, support on the on the fire on the fire ground that is greater than that of a bullet. So obviously we call in clo um, you know, uh, danger close missions. Other times you go out and you'll be in the mountains or in any other observation point. You could be doing things like signals where you just literally call in, you're sitting for three days, there'll be only four years up in the mountains in Afghanistan and you're just calling in observations so that way you can see the enemy setting up any patterns. So when a later platoon comes through on the ground, you're ready or they're ready for what's coming from you. You can say, all right, they're forming up at this location. If they're within range, you just literally put a bomb onto them and that's, you just decimate them. Um, other times you might be able to identify, which happens a lot, where the locals are avoiding a certain area. So straight away, you know there's a large IED in the ground. So you can um, radio through the forward line of our troops and say you're coming up to a known spot. I suspect there's an IED of a vehicle born or a person mine in this location. The engineers go back, put a detonator, and once they find it, blow it up, and then the threat's gone. So you have a very role, very, you know, a varying role in a, in a war zone, but that's where they are, the trust of what we do. There must be a lot of trust because, I mean, if they mess that up, you can get popped. I mean, you're relying on the artillery to be absolutely exact with it. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, and that's I mean, why we do a lot of you're very exposed. On, on danger yeah. close. Exactly right. Yeah. It's, it's a, yeah, and you need to be really um, drilled in the way you go about things because remember, you're not just coordinating coordinates on a radio sitting out there just, oh, yeah, got time. You're copping bullets. So you're, you're, in a, you're in the green zone with the, with the infantry troops. You know, quite often, the only time, actually the only time you're ever calling in bombs is when you're, you're getting attacked. So you have, you have to identify the enemy. In Afghanistan, where everyone wears similar clothes, well, the only time you're going to be able to identify them is when they're firing at you. So you're getting shot at and you'll be able to call in exact coordinates and then taking into consideration of the vast of the bomb so you can look after your own troops. And that makes doing what's fighting patrols backwards you know, and getting in a position where you can pin down the enemy enough to actually call in the bombs. If you call in the bombs when you know, you're still in that danger zone, you're going to get percussion, you're going to have internal bleeding and you'll kill your own. So um, it is it's something that takes a couple of years to really able to specialise and, and get used to. So you're in Geelong, you join the army in Australia, you go to Afghanistan, there's a huge leap between all of that. The very first time somebody's trying to kill you, literally somebody's trying to kill you, what yeah. was going through your head? Yeah, it's like, funny, you go through your drills. So the first time I got, I got shot at was, um, it was actually the first week we got there. Got a little bit lazy. So we're sitting in a, in a, in a, in a, in a complex which had, um, um, they call it the Hilton feature. So it was a, it was a large quiet complex. So I was checking for uh, from bombs in there because obviously it's an entry point into where we're going to the green zone, from the desert to the green zone. So you know, if, if the um, enemy is going to coordinate anything, it's probably more than likely out of that building. So they were going through, and as a forward observer, I didn't have much to do. So I'm not an engineer. I'm not really doing any of the searches. So I'm sitting outside, and I'm sitting out there for about six hours. You know, the winter's starting to kick in, pretty cold, and then the, uh, your, your ass goes in a bit numb, and then you go, oh, here's a nice sunny spot over there, nice 20 metres away, I'll go get some sun. 
So you venture over there, you sit there and go, oh, this is good. And you sit down in Afghanistan, it's an untouched environment. You know, there's, no, there's, there's no cars, there's no pollution. It's, it's, really, it's really peaceful. And then all of a sudden, boom, 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 right in front of you, just bang, bang, bang. You know, obviously, the next bullet, you know, the first bullet landed about four or five metres in front of me and, and it was going across. So um, you know, training will tell you straight away that's an AK-47 because when they're training, they put the, the gun pulls from left to high right, from low left to right. So he shot at me. And if it was a better shot, it would have took me out. That's the enemy. So you end up going through very quickly your army rules. You roll to the left, you yell out contact like an idiot, like, yeah, like, you know, it's bullet, bullets flying. Of course, there's a fucking enemy there. <laughs> and you, know, you end up doing a couple of moves, and then you just do things with Drake firing. So I didn't know where this guy was coming from. Uh, you know, obviously, just the bullets are still coming. And then you, you're like, where the fuck is this guy coming from? You try and look for a scope. But then, you know, obviously, you're still not, you know, you're still in an adjustment zone, coming into a, to a war zone. And then you, you have to do a thing called Drake firing, which you fire on places you think you could actually be firing for. So pop, 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 pop. And then from there, it all stops. So, and then you get up and you, 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 go, you get a hard, hard race oh, to get. You go, right, off you go. There's your first one. And then you get up, you do the control again, and you continue on. Is there any troops that you've seen or experienced that just, like, freak out, no matter how good their training is, that just, like, because once, once that happens, yeah. it's hard to know what yeah. to expect. Yeah, absolutely. Because everyone yeah. handles stress in a different way. Yeah, on the same week, so I, yeah. I had a pretty eventful uh, first week. So we went, we're going through a local bazaar, and uh, it's the time I shit myself, that's why I'm telling this one for us. So going back through the local bazaar, bazaar's a local market. So I'm at the arse end, Arnold. There's no need for a forward observer at this stage. You're not going to call in bombs into a local bazaar, because you'll just get mashed with cozies and kill civilians. So, you know, so I'm at the back there, just covering the rear of the platoon as they're going through. And then three Afghani National Armies, who the guys were training up, didn't want to go through the bazaar. They, they just freaked out. So they've bolted off. My section commander's got in the SBR and told me to go take after them. So I've sprinted off after these bricks, trying to yell them to get back into the fighting platoon so we can actually train them to go through the bazaar. When, we come, when we've come back, that's taken about a minute, minute and a half. When I've come back to the start of the market, the platoon, don't know why, they just decided to bloody desert me. They just kept on bloody walking. So I'm standing there, and all of a sudden, you're 400 metres away from your own platoon. So I've looked up to the right, and there's a team section, oh, sorry, a little bit of a, a crossing section, and there's a vehicle coming straight at us, and everyone in the back of that vehicle's got an AK-47. There's about 15 of them. They're standing in the back of the vehicles. I don't, don't know if they're national police, don't know if they're national army, and I don't know if they're Taliban. I'm not getting support from those guys, because they're 400 metres away, and there's no way knowing I'm taking my gun. So you're gun. on your own? Yeah, well, I'm not fucking taking my hand off the gun, I can assure yeah. you. I'm not going to get on my SBR and say, hey, boys, look around, because in that time, they mates freak out, their hands moving, and then they take my life away. That's the end of it. So I stood out there with the hand, hand you know, facing the ground, just at any stage, ready up and just to blast them. So, you know, you obviously, you across the odd style, you, you pull a, a little clip down the bottom that makes it, goes from semi-automatic to automatic, so that way, if these guys fire at me, they're going to take my life. There's no doubt about it. There's too many of them. But I'm going to take as many of those out as I can. So, luckily for me, they've come forward at a very slow pace. And I'll tell you now, you, you know, my ass is doing this, 50 cent, 5 cent. And, you, and you're panicking. And it wasn't, I don't know if I froze, but one thing I didn't do is I didn't fire, I didn't move, and all I did is move eye contact and just watch them as they went past. And as the vehicle went past, I slowly moved with the vehicle. Were they so watching you? Going, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm Australian soldiers, so you know, if they were Taliban, at the end of the day, you know, there's, there's 15 of them that got away and I didn't engage, but if I had engaged, I was dead. So. You know, that's just an example of some of the situations you can get in. Different people are going to take that in different ways. Some people are going to be really affected by it. It's going to really check their anxiety levels out and see if they can really continue on fighting the next day. It will test you. Mm. 
Lawrence, just talk us through your story from military training to what you did in Afghanistan and what, what unit you were in and what, were your, what was your role there? Yeah, so Kapoka, um, basic training, the, like, like David was saying, and then from there went to, I was in the infantry, so I went to School of, uh, school of Infantry, Singer, um, which is in Singleton, New South Wales. I think that's uh, about a 13, 14 week course where you train to be an infantry soldier. Um, so I guess everyone sort of gets that foundational skill set of you know, how to patrol and all that at Kapuka, but really, really basic. And they just build on that um, to, to, be, um, to be an infantry soldier. From there, got posted to 7RAR, which is, was in Adelaide. Um, and similar sort of thing, you yeah, start off in a rifle company, spend your time in a rifle company, work in a section, then once you've spent a bit of time in a rough company, you get um, you get and sort of courses become available to you. Once you I think it's private proficient, you need to hit that um, sort of thing. Private proficient, yeah, it's yeah. Private, yeah. Um, you hit that, and then all these other courses open up for you. We we're a mechanised battalion, so you sort of had your mechanised stream where you could go down and learn how to drive and crew command uh, M113 AS4, or you had your support company route, which was. Um, where you do your recon snipers, your DFSW, your mortar course, and your signals course. Um, all your signals course, sorry, they're all individual platoons and skill sets. Um, and I went down the and did S3C, which is like a radio course. Learned all about how to use a radio in an infantry platoon and in an infantry environment. Um, and it's very different to what, there's different in some spots, like not calling in stuff or anything like that, um, but it's basically doing, providing that battlefield commentary um, for, your, for hire, um, for your command post, mm. um, so that they've got a good picture of what's happening in the battle space, um, so that they can start working on their end. You know, if they've got anything happening on the ground, then they can start getting you know, medivac, or they can get the QRF, or they can start arranging other assets um, and other call signs to move about, and then also downwards, I'm relaying what they're saying to my uh, platoon commander, who is then, you know, controlling his area. Um, so that's, so I did that, went over to Afghanistan, started off um, working in CP and then went over to a platoon and was a platoon signaller um, for a, um, what was called a OGA, other government agency platoon, for a provincial reconstruction team, a PRT, which was an American-led, um, basically, group that had a whole range of specialists in it from AusAid, DFAT, Department of Agriculture, Department of um, Economy and um, like proper engineers and all this sort of stuff. And what they would be doing is they, they'd be going all around Aruzgan province um, and advising the, um, the Afghan people, the Afghan government on how to do things. So basically any government role or any role really that you see in a council environment in Melbourne. There was someone in a PRT almost who was doing that and advising that. So I was part of the force protection for that. So you were like their security? Correct, yeah. yeah. So they, they, they'd go, we need, to, I don't know, we need to go have a chat to this dude. So we'd move with them, make sure they were protected, make sure that they weren't um, trying, yeah, make sure that they had some form of protection basically. Mm. Um, and I was a platoon sig for that. So it was, um, it was a, probably a really interesting role in the sense that I got to see firsthand a lot of the, I guess, the benefits of what we were doing in Afghanistan. Uh, we hear a lot about all the really sort of, 
I guess, the, the, the bad stuff or the fighting side of the house. Um, we don't really hear about the other stuff, you know, the fact that we're able to help them build schools and open hospitals and put in infrastructure um, within Tarrant and within Aruzgan that actually had a dr dramatic and market improvement to, to their lives. Um, you know, we're talking about real, real stuff like women being able to read and write, you know, stuff like that. That's what Australian presence in Aruzgan achieved. Um, it's, it's, it's not something that's focused on, but, um, but I think it's something that Australia should be immensely proud of because um, we did make, we, we gave that nation hope to an extent. And Do you think that it's different with the American um, intervention? I just read an article a couple mm. of weeks ago by uh, Zach Kaplan and Margot Bauer about um, the sort of corruption in the, Australian, in the Afghanistan government mm. Mm. and some of the special services, some American special services, um, working together to set up dodgy sort of mining companies, mm. uh, artisan <laughs> mining, yeah. and uh, they're all making a quid out of it. Not your, not your rank and yeah, file yeah. troops, but yeah. some of the senior uh, people, and uh, it just seemed like a total cartel, you know, at the oh, expense well, of the... But yeah, what you're saying, yeah. your experience is different than that. Oh, well, you know, we've got ICAC. Is it ICAC, the corruption, anti-corruption yeah. in Australia? We've got that for a reason as well. You know, where you've got money, where you've got assets, where you've got things on the ground, you're going to have... Someone's going to make money out of it. Um, so, you know, it's horrendous, but I, like, all I can speak about, I can't speak about strategy, high level, I can't speak about any of that, but I can speak about the eight month period I was there and what I saw. Um, and from what I saw was, um, was there horrendous things? Yeah, there was. Was there, um, was there corruption? Was there, you know, people playing the system and trying to get stuff, you know, done for themselves rather than others? Of course there were. Um, but there was also the opposite of that. You know, there was there was a lot of people there trying to trying to make uh, trying to make it a better country, um, and yeah, I didn't I didn't I didn't have any illegal mining deals though. You got, you got you got nothing else. Fair enough. Could have been the, the Brendan. I can't think of any were different between di more different than Geelong and Afghanistan. I mean, when you look at a photograph of Afghanistan, I've ever been there. It looks like a lunar landscape. It's obviously a Muslim country. Yeah. Um, it's a third world country. It's had wars going back. God, since the British first went in there, you know, and then the Russians and, the, you know, obviously in the last 20 or 30 years. I mean, when you, when you rocked up there, I mean, what were your, of the place itself, not, I don't mean the war so much here, but just yeah. that the, the, it must have been like you're in a different planet. Yeah, right? it must have seemed like that. Yeah, I think the only difference between Afghanistan and Geelong is there's a couple of suburbs that they both need a bombing. <laughs> but, um, despite that, when you, uh, when you obviously go into a place like that, then you really don't know what you're getting into. Yeah, you can talk about war all you like, but until you're there, it's a completely different experience. So when you stand up there, and you know, we, were, we were always in the, in the Chura Valley, in the, the start of the Chura Valley is the Bluchy Pass. So it, it's, it's famous, you know, the French Foreign Legion went around and got killed. Um, the only person that's ever really made it successful through the Chura Pass was Genghis. And then all of a sudden you're 20 kilometres for it, and you look down in the pass that, you know, probably, probably 200 to 250,000 men have died in over, over oh, history battles. Yeah, he, he couldn't make it through there. So you go through those battles and you realise you're 20 kilometres from it. This, these, and these people are um, fighting. They're, they're um, sorry, I cut that bit out, but they are uh, strengthened fighters. They've been fighting for a long time. Yeah. And, and the, the landscape has changed. If you look, you look for a little bit of history and you go through Afghanistan, what it was 200 years ago, you know, they were Persians. Now, they're not Persians, they're Mongolians. And they're, they're five foot two, they're small, they look like Genghis. And that's the whole, he's changed the whole landscape of that, of that country. So it's, it's changed dramatically. And then 
Um, and then you, you, then you find old, old remnants of, of war left, right and centre. And was, I remember one of the day we called it Happy Bomb Day. We were sitting in a little complex area and the, the engineer picked up a large area just, just scanning. We all walked over it and there was a massive hit and he started, started digging. And we got down there and there was something like 43 RPGs that were supplies and they were anti-armour um, uh, anti that was supplied by the US to the Mujahideen to fight against the Russians. So you go through and you, you realise you're in an area where everyone there, uh, one, doesn't care if they live or die because they're, that's, they're used to it, and two, they're, they're, they're seasoned fighters. So it puts you on your toes, that's for sure. It's quite ironic that the Mujahideen and you know, some of the people you're fighting against were originally the good guys. You know, when the Russians were there, yeah. like Reagan and that, they said, oh, these are the good guys, these are freedom fighters. And yep. it was like a bit of a monster that they created that sort of seems to have got out of their control a bit. Yeah, that's great, yeah. Um, yeah. And you see, you see old villages that used to be in existence that the Russians went through and, and decimated. And they, and the still see the BDMs on the side of the road all sort of... Did you, did you guys ever meet a Taliban, like in terms of interrogation or a prisoner yeah, of, of war? Or, yeah. I mean, what, what motivates... I put it differently, I'm from Ireland. There was a war in the north of Ireland. It's nothing compared to what happened in Afghanistan. But the British yeah. Army... Um, would be very isolated from the community for their own yeah. personal safety. When they weren't working, they would stay in their barracks. Yeah. Um, they wouldn't really meet locals that much. Yeah. The, the locals wouldn't want to meet with them unless they were shooting them or throwing a, you know, something at them. Yeah. Um, and I just wonder how much uh, chance you had to meet Afghanis and yeah. also Taliban. Yeah, but we spoke to the Afghanis. Yeah. We were in a, on entry task force too, so we were training with them. We slept with them. We trained them. So we had heaps of conversation with them, and some of them. Uh, are picking up English and those sort of skill sets. There's others that are, are your interpreters that are quite well conversed in English. So obviously in regards to what motivates them, let's be honest, the most easy human to, emotion to teach is hate. Mm. They mm. literally hate you. And if the second one is fear. Um, so they hate you, they, they really do hate coalition forces and they, they inflict fear onto their local community. If someone comes up and they've got information that all sisters, uh, the person is a target. They put themselves, lives, their families at the risk to tell us information. So you've got fear, hatred, and it's a it's a nasty cocktail. And the only way to to get any uh, advantage in that environment is for mass killings. Mm. Now, that's what shocks them. The other day, you can talk about whatever you like. You can have whatever you like in the Australian media and in their pamphlets. The only thing that really speaks up there is you put a bomb on and blow up a little of them. What's your, what was your experience, I mean, in, in terms of mixing with locals and did you ever meet anyone who was a fighter for the Taliban? Yeah, um, yeah, what, we, we came across... Would you agree yeah. with Brendan in terms of the motivation of those people? Or? Yeah, I think, um, I think they're... Yeah, I think I, I would agree with that 100%. I think they're thugs. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's... I don't know how to. I don't know how to describe it. I'm not as articulate yeah. as you, mate. Yeah, the no, Taliban. They have the guns. They've got the yeah. power, um, and they've got no fear. And there's no. There's no. Like we. We. Like the. The prisoners that you like. There'd be no. They'd be there for. No time. You know, released yeah. very quickly with bribes or whatnot. Um, back on the streets. Yeah. Like it's sort of. Um, it's frustrating. You capture a bloke, you interrogate him, you send him off as a puck or a helicopter, you think they're going to get some justice. Mm. You'll see him back in the field two days later yeah. and you'll be like, geez, we just pick up a gun so I can take your life. That's the only way we're going to get justice here. Do you think if Australia was, say the Chinese, there was a war in, yeah. in East Asia, God forbid, 
um, and China invaded and took over Australia or Indonesia did or whatever country mm. did. I mean, do you think that you guys would join an Australian Taliban? Maybe not with the same politics, obviously, because you're not, yeah. you know, um, you, you, know think, you look at the world differently. But do, do, you know, do you know what I'm saying? Like in Ireland, where I came from, in the north of Ireland, the English control the north of Ireland. And a lot of kids my age back in the day, not me personally, but, you know, got involved in the paramilitary right. organisations because yep. in their view, you know, part of their country was taken over by a bigger country. Yeah. Mm. Um, like, I, I'm not doubting anything that you're saying about the Taliban and, and, and your, you know, mm. but I'm just wondering what you would do in that situation. Did, did, did you have any sort of, under, like, because yeah. they didn't like the Russians being there, they don't like the Yanks being there, they don't mm. like you guys being there. And um, no one's trying to justify their attitude towards women or anything like that yeah. because, I mean, fortnight, three weeks ago, they blew up a, a school in, in, yeah. in Kabul. Mm. 50 girls yeah. were, were murdered. But I'm just more talking about from their perspective. Yeah. Generally, they're looking yeah, at it from like you guys are foreigners yeah. in their country, or is that unfair? Like, no, I think what, I think the difference is education. What what Lawrence's his team was a part of was educating them, wasn't it? So we've got 20% of the population really that, that controls it. The other 80% don't hate us. There's a, I've got an interpreter here, and we've got another bloke that works for us who's an engineer. He's from Afghanistan. He tells a completely different story. When U.S. troops go in there. It wasn't as the um, as the media portrays it, as in the people throwing grenades and getting angry in the streets. They were celebrating because there was a chance they're going to be liberated from this controlling entity, which had no problems killing people to get their political point across. You know, we don't have the Liberal Labor Party here out there killing each other. You know, we got a day which we go out there and we have our say. They don't have that. So for a lot of Afghanis, you know, 80% of them want coalition forces. They'll assist. They need assistance in that country. Uh, unfortunately, they, they can't control the demon that's within their country and it's, you know, it's for their financial detriment, it's their education, it's their future. There's so many things that are just affected by that one group that just renders that country hopeless. You know, we're not going for a holiday there. Mm. Um, I don't know, you know what my pop would have swore at when he went to Vietnam, whether he would have went for a holiday 40 years, but I've been to Vietnam on a holiday. You have to go there. It's a, it's a safe country. It's, it does have... You know, communist politics, but in regards to a holiday destination, you can go there and have a good time. I don't think you're going to do the same in Afghanistan for years. Mm. How do you feel? I mean, last year, President Trump started peace talks with the Taliban. This year, um, President Biden is saying that on September 11, the last US troops will be out of Afghanistan, and Scott, Scott Morrison saying the same thing with Australian troops. Do you feel... I mean, it, it seems like in Vietnam, when the Americans pulled out in 73, two years later, the North had taken over the South, like it was, it was that, that was the end of it sort of yeah, thing. Gotcha. Do you think that that's what's going to happen in Afghanistan when uh, foreign happen. troops come out, that the yeah. Taliban will take over? Yeah, and if that's the case, does that make you feel, how does that make you feel? I mean, you, you, you've spent, you know, the cream of your youth in Afghanistan or, you know, and now the Taliban could well potentially yeah. be running the show. Well, I, I think, I think, I don't know, let's put it. Just say, like, we all agree apartheid in South Africa was horrendous and, you know, white minority rule was horrendous. Like, we're essentially talking about minority rule by the Taliban. If, 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 if everyone turned around and said, we're happy with apartheid, we, you know, we fought you guys, but nah, you guys are, you've, you guys are holding on. Not many people would be happy with that, I don't think, in, in Australia. would be like, hold on a minute, they're doing bad stuff. What's going on here? But for some reason, we've got a different view with the Taliban. You know, we're, we're, we're happy to go, yeah, cool, we've, we've spent a lot, of, a lot of lives there and a lot of money there and, and a lot of time there. And um, that's cool. Hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I, I just, what do you think? I mean, do you know, do you yeah, know what I'm you saying? You always hope it doesn't happen, but there's nothing you can really do. It. Once the troops are out, they're out. And you really left that country in the state of this. So my job in regards to, obviously, outside of being a forward observer was to train those guys up, get them ready, um, get the civilians up to a stage where they could fight these guys. And you always hope, that in the back of your mind, that, that you did a good job and those guys are going to be able to protect their villages from the wrath that's going to come. Do you think that the Afghani army without, you know, the Australian and American troops and others is going to be able to stand up to the Taliban on their own? Oh, you can just hope. So obviously I, I got blown up there in 2011. That's when I left the country. Um, we were there for another seven years after that. And unfortunately, I don't know too many other people that went over there to see that, get any feedback of how well capacity there is. But when I was there, you know, their capacity of a 10-year-old child, really, their, their army... Drills avoided. Um, they really don't want to be in the country. You know, they're, they're more happy to receive the money and send it back to their families, um, but with the intent of potentially getting out of their country. But their biggest dream is to get out. So it's hard to fight someone who wants to be there and is going to risk their lives for their purpose. Go to someone else who doesn't want to be there. So it's a it's a big mentality. Step up, and all you can do is pray. So how would you describe the differences between Australian troops and American troops? Are they, do they have different motivations? Are they, is their equipment better than no, ours? No, of course. Is it, is it, they... funding, funding is a lot better. In regards to mentality, it, it, it changes from section to section. So you've got those who are really level-headed. You've got others that have you know, 18, 19-year-old kids and all of a sudden they're in Afghanistan that they're going to be a bit gung-ho. Um, in regards to assets, being from a forward observer, there was a massive difference. So we were in a transition period when the Dutch were getting out of there and I hated dealing with the Dutch. They'd come back there, you'd call a line-up, which is whatever assets or whatever. So the Australians were with the Dutch in the yeah, same area? Yeah, that's correct. So yep. the Dutch were okay. in there and they'd have the helicopters in there. So, and you'd call in and you know, the attack helicopters would be in the area or a close air support and you'd call in the line-up, which talks about the ammunition, um, how much fuel they've got, how much time on target it's going to take to get there, how long you've got the asset for. And when you're dealing with the Dutch, they'll be half-loaded, um, you know, and no motivation. And they'll just give you two or three liners back and just realise... Yeah, these guys don't want to be up there. They're just flying around for a little bit of fun. They're out of here in two months. And then you know, the Americans take over. And the first lineup you get is, yeah, we're really we're loaded today. We're fully ready to rock. And you just go, there, bang, 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 bang. We've got 20, mate, mate. We're going to fuck shit up today. And your head, is in regards to confidence, really grows. And you're happy they're there. You really hope that you've got that asset behind you. Because at the end of the day, if you're getting shot at and you're losing a battle, you, know, you, you can talk about their mentality that's always been a bit gung-ho. But I can tell you, when you're actually getting shot at, you want that, you need that. And it gives you a lot more confidence in your skill sets and being able to provide what you do as a forward observer to your team to protect Australians' lives when you've got that asset behind you. So for me, I was very happy they were there and they loved working with the Aussies. I think the, the biggest thing you actually see, we always talk about the reputation that those who have fought before us um, in Australian forces through Gallipoli and, and all other, other battles throughout, what reputation that, that is in the world scale, but you actually see it when you're in Afghanistan. And the Americans love working with us. They know that Australians are well-trained, um, you know, we're, we're smart, we won't go into a suicide mission, we'll call in the right assets, we'll do the right thing, we won't, you know, we won't just go and um, blow shit up for the purpose of it. You know, we're, we're meticulous the way we go about war zones. So they enjoy working with us and, and it's a great relationship. So Lawrence, you, you were doing personal security, did you meet other coalition forces? Yeah, we had a lot. Uh, PRC was American-led, so it was sort of like two Australian call signs and two American. 
And what was your experience with, with? Yeah, like I, I had, I really liked the Americans. Good banter. Mm. Yeah, good. Um, I guess a different. Um, Did you meet with the Dutch much? No, they were gone by the time I got yeah. there. Yeah, they were, they were gone. I think. Um, yeah, I can't. I, I can't even remember seeing one or two of them. Uh, I think they were completely gone. I think. Um, and then there was. Yeah, I, I really, actually really liked working with the Americans. They. Um, they really like it. I guess. How do you put it? It's like you're professionals, right? Like we're, we're not a conscript army. We're all professionals. We all want to be there. We're all, you know, volunteers, and and they're they're similar. Our motivations for joining might be different, or our motivations for being there might be different. But at the end of the day, you're getting like professional dudes in a room, and they're talking. You're working each other, and the banter comes out, and it's sort of like, what's the difference? You're wearing, oh, we're all wearing multicam. I had an A and F, and they had an American flag. Um, they had, I think, M4s, and I had a style like. It was, um, yeah. I that was the only cool. difference, really. Um, yeah, like it, there was cultural differences and stuff, but. Well, they're talking, uh, attitude. That's yeah. better, but it's, yeah, it's a confidence. You're in a war zone. Sometimes yeah. confidence isn't a bad thing to have. Yeah, 100%. So you were there for eight months. Yeah. And how long were you there before you had your accident? Uh, so just over three and a half months before I got blown up. Can you talk us through your accident, what happened? Yeah, yeah. Please. So we were, we were on a, a base called Cop Marshall. So um, 12th of December, uh, just before the winter kicks in. What obviously year? In, Af in 2010. So when the winter kicks in, in Afghanistan, it snows. A lot of people don't realise that. It's a, it's a country that goes from uh, 50 degrees heat during the summer to, to minus 15. It's, it's vast. The mountains uh, are you know, bigger than many mountains we have in Australia. And it's, uh, it gets, it's pretty cold there. So the Taliban don't like to fight either during the winter cold, they don't have better good equipment, they don't have snow gear, um, so they don't want to fight. So they call the two or three weeks before winter kicks in the fighting season, or one fighting season, Ramadan's the other big one. So we got some intel coming in that the, the Taliban obtained a mortar bait place. So what they are is they, try and off, they fire off Chinese rockets, little 62 millimetre rockets, and when it's on a mortar bait place and it's bedded in, they're highly accurate. So what can happen if the snow's coming in, they fire at the base, and then the choppers can't get up because the snow's coming down, then all of a sudden everyone in that base is going to die a pretty horrible fucking death. So the Australian public doesn't want to hear that, especially coming up to Christmas. So that's the last thing the Australian politicians want, and no one Australians, no soldiers want either. So we went out, we got the base plate on the first day. Um, from there, the direction came down from, from, from headquarters that they wanted to go back through the rest of the valley and uh, clear out every single building to take those Chinese rockets. Because what you can do is, if you're highly skilled, you can put them on rocks and with enough heat they will fire off. Hugely inaccurate, 99% you know, chance it's, it's going to be a dud. Um, but there's always that 1% chance they could get lucky and, and, and get a shot on the base. So we went out there and started clearing it. Unfortunately, what we did is, you know, whenever we go, our training is in a platoon level training, is that you don't set patterns. In other words, you go out one day, you don't go there the next day because if you do that three times in a row, I guarantee you they're going to fucking booby trap you. They're going to ambush you, they're going to know exactly what you're doing. So, Fortunately for us, we got told to go through the valley, so we followed orders, um, orders we don't usually do. So, but we went out there, started clearing, building a building, a building, a building. So, fortunately, we got to a, a point. It was the, I think it was the sixth day in. It was the 19th of December. Um, a bloke went pretty quickly back into a koala complex. We were on a, we were on a, on a um, foot patrol, and I was over a section next to a, to a cliff. So, as a forward observer, that's where I want to be. So, if there's anyone's forming out over the wood, which is the river or any of those buildings, I can see them and I can call and attack helicopters before they come to us. So that was the best place for me. Unfortunately, we're going over a, uh, a crossing. 
and we crossed that crossing just before the uh, left hand, on the right hand side of the building. I've gone in to the right, a couple of boats gone left, and I've stayed on a what's called a pressure plate. So in the, in the, in the, um, in the process of, of, of running, um, my left leg's taken off a pressure plate. So what they've done is, um, you know, quite often when it's you know, winter, oh, sorry, summer, we'll go through, and whenever you put in you know, a, a, a 20 litre drum, where you've got ammunitions and, and shrapnel, all that sort of thing, you put them in the ground, you put a pressure plate about a metre in front of it, then it's fresh, fresh dug, and you can see it the next day. You know, anyone, if you go into any suburb, you dig a hole, the next day you go in there, the soil's different colour. So we find these things all the time. But in winter when the snow's kicking in and it's mud everywhere, you, know, you can lay it, come back over there, big snow comes in, big rain comes in, everything's bloody mud. So unfortunately for me, it's just well placed IED, uh, but luckily for me, they placed, because I was in a rush, they obviously knew it was coming, they put the pressure plate right on top of the actual charge. So what happened is when, it, when I've stepped on the bomb, it's, it's flown me straight in the air. So it's, it's blew my leg off and um, did a massive, massive to my left arm, but it didn't kill me. Because if the pressure plate's in front, or the charge, sorry, is a, is, is a meter in front, what happens when you stand on it, it's directional. It goes 45 degrees and all the shrapnel will just go through your guts, through your face, through your neck, you're dead. That's the end of you. So for me, I've survived, uh, but it cost me my left leg and the way of life. Were you unconscious, like straight nah, away? No, nah. I just felt like you were going really fast down the bike. So was it? What was the pain like? I mean, or was it? Were you just shock kicked in and you didn't feel anything? Yeah, not, well, probably only about five or six seconds. I reckon that you went in there. So the first time that I was standing there, and obviously your ears are what's ringing the most. It's like screaming. Did you know straight away what had happened? No, nah, not to me. Yeah. So basically, I, I, like I said, I've landed, and I'm, I'm just sitting on my ass. Well, my, my, my gun's there, so I picked up my gun by right hand, not thinking not. How much has gone wrong? So I've gone to stand up, and I just yelled, "Who the fuck hit that?" And then from there, all of a sudden, boom! I flooded in. What the fuck are you doing? And I just thought, "Oh shit, maybe I'm a bit dizzy." Went to stand up again, fell on over, and this time I've fallen over. I've just gone back, backwards a bit. My left hand touched the ground. Then my my left arm's on a 45 degree angle. The bone's sticking out, um, and then I put down there, and my foot's not there. And then I just realised, "Ah oh, fuck, it was that was me." So and then from there, you've you know, you fucking yell, fuck, fuck, someone help us out here. We need fucking air evacuation, I need out, I need out. And then from there, the boys come so over. So you were able to communicate, even though you were yeah, in the... Yeah, yeah, so the blew, obviously blew the radio off, and I'm, that's my job, you know. I was about to call them the air evacuation. So all of a sudden, it was, someone else had to stand up and do that responsibility, of, uh, ensuring the area was safe, calling in air, air evacuation, and then throwing up smoke. But unfortunately, it was, it was just one of those days where, you know, always, you always try and win each day in a battle in a battle zone, but it, it didn't happen that day. So we got ambushed on the battlefield, and the local Taliban, because we weren't, they didn't have an input uh, imprint on the ground further north, they they blew up the local bazaar. So we had um, you know, suicide vests killing up people in the market, and then we we're getting blown up ourselves. Um, so when the chopper came to me, it was it was almost relief. It was like because um, you know, basically the, the hardest thing about it, the most painful thing about it, is your whole left hand side of your, or your body is opened. So it's, you know, it's quite deep wounds that you, know, you can see your nerves and quite well. Was you your leg your gone bone. at that stage? Or? Yeah, the foot's yeah. gone. Yeah. yeah, the foot's gone. And then, you know, the, Did they give you morphine? Did, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, free hits it, thank Christ. Yeah. <laughs> your beauty. It's good stuff. Um, but before the helicopter came? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, um, yeah, because the wind's up. You know, it's, it's, it's minus five, minus six degrees, and all of a sudden the wind's up. And then all it's got, the cold wind is going straight into your, your flesh wounds. It, it stinks. It's, it's, not, it's something you don't want to wish on your, on your enemies. But then when the chopper comes, you think, oh, thank fuck. And you're thinking, all right, 15 minutes time, I'm going to be out, they're going to knock me out, they're going to sedate me, they're going to 
fixed me up, and I didn't think I was that bad. I knew, obviously knew the, the, the foot was, you know, right open. There was most of it gone, but for some reason you don't really compute that. You, you look at it and go, oh, you can, you know, you can see a little bit of foot. It'll get sewn up. So yeah, yeah you yeah. think, oh, they're, they're going to be able to sew that up and fix it up again, or they're going to be able to put some steel rods to replace your bones, that sort of stuff. So you're not thinking that you're dead. And then all of a sudden, the chopper goes to my previous base. And I, it, was, it was coming down, I think, oh, fuck, that was really good. That was nice and quick. The chopper's at the, the, at the, at the hospital already. And it drops it at the base, and I had just enough strength. I put my head up, had a look there, and then they threw these two kids in with us. So they're from, obviously, the local bazaar that just got blown up. I realised, fuck, that's my old base. And I think, oh, no. And hopefully there's no more stops. And then you get back, you know, it about 10 minutes, you get back to the hospital. They open up the... Um, or during the time of it, you know, we obviously the American pilot and the American medic at the back of it, he's frantic at the first, first two or three minutes. He's obviously plugging the elvis, trying to get some hydraulics into us, working out where the tourniquets need to be, looks at it, and then about three minutes in, he just grabbed everything out and he just threw it in the ground. So he gave up and, and presumed we're all going to die. We go open there, the chopper, they open up the door, they look in there and there's, there's two kids and there's me. They always talk about you know, the United Nations treaty that, you know, no one's treated any different in the war zone. I can assure you when you're dying, even if there's kids next to you, you just hope you're the one that they pick up and, you, and you're going to survive. So um, the medics opened up the door. They looked at all three of us. They just said that the kids are gone. There's nothing you could do about them. This one's half a chance. Let's get him out and give him a crack. I'm like, fucking half a chance. What are you on about? I'm right. Just, just sew the foot up and we'll be right. I'll be back out here in a couple of weeks. Oh, you were the one with half a chance. Yeah, yeah. yeah so right they dragged me out there. And then it wasn't until... They drag you in, obviously you go into a hospital, it's quite cold, and then everyone's panicking, everyone's running, people running everywhere, getting, uh, getting ready for surgery. That um, the um, nurse comes up and she's got a phone. And she goes, oh, you, need to, you really need to call home and tell your family you love them. I said, I'm fucking calling home. I'm not going to tell people that I'm, I'm blown up. I'll be right after this, just fix me up. And then I'll call them five, six times, five or six times when I'm, when I'm fine. And then she put the phone down and then she puts some checkboard up and asks you if you're an organ donor. And then it's really like, oh, fuck me, I'm in trouble here. Um, so they, they obviously put me in, all the cords go on you. It's got a tourniquet on the leg, tourniquet on the arm. And then obviously what they want to do is obviously knock you out. So they put the gas on you. But they release the tourniquets to try and identify what, where the blood's coming from, what they need to do. It's, it's a really quick process. The problem is then is it released all the blood. So I didn't have enough pressure to process the blood from my heart to the rest of my body. So the gas didn't knock me out. So I was just sitting there all calm, just going, fuck, take this pain away, take this pain away. And then all of a sudden the doctor starts talking about chopping my fucking arm off. Did he know that you could hear no, all that? No, they told so you I, were knocked I, I out. popped yeah. right up and then I threatened to kill him. I threatened to kill him on the room. So he fuck, touch my arm. I'll come back, I've still got one good arm. I will take your fucking life and I'll kill every one of you fucking in here. And then all of a sudden, bang, they put these tablets in you. That's him just coming up. <laughs> yeah, that's the end that's of that one. <laughs> See you later, I wake up seven days later. So you were, you were, when you woke up seven days later, you, what, you were in Kabul, you were in... Yeah, still in Kabul, so I was on yeah. the flight. Um, so, yeah, you've got no idea what's going on. You're out, it's dark. Um, and you're drunk you're in a to lot the of max, pain. yeah. Yeah, even though, the, so even though it's, um, you know, you're, going, you're still in, you're stabilised just to get yourself to Germany. And then from there, obviously what happens is you go in surgery straight away when you get in there, so they can't give you water. So you've got that much morphine pumped in your system to keep your pain down. I had blisters just welding up in your mouth and just, just bursting. So every two minutes just had these water belts and this massive pain. Just bang, 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 all these welts. And, and it just went for, it felt like days. It was fucking horrendous. And then um, you get to the end and they finally plan, oh, the plane opens up and I'm just screaming, get me the fuck off this thing, get off this plane. 
And then everyone, all the, all the nurse that were getting off, and I was like, where the fuck is he going? Where is he going? Get me out of here. And then the, everything went quiet. And then unfortunately, the, the, the next person that came in the, play, the, the plane was the priest. And then it, it, it shut me up. And he got onto his knee, and there's two Americans that died on that flight. And then I just realised, well, I'm alive. They'll get me out. Fuck it. And he just, you know. This was on the flights of Germany. Yeah, it's correct, yeah. When yeah. you get into Germany. And then, you know, all I wanted was water just to stop the pain of all the welts bursting in my mouth. Um, but that was it, and they quickly got me out of there. Uh, under How long were you in hospital in Germany for? Um, I, was there, I was there on the on Christmas Day. I remember that a lot. Um, we had um, General Casey, who's a four-star general from the US. Him and his wife uh, travelled all the way from the US to be with injured soldiers in, in Germany, and that's how they spent their Christmas was good. So um, I tried to stand up and salute him and, and say thank you and for his wife. and. He ended up giving me what's called a calling card, those calls that the Americans stand on each other and the, you know, the person with the higher card buys the, or gets a drink off the other person. So I got a four-star general card for, for that. So it was good that you get that nice touch from, from the US. Unfortunately, there wasn't too many people from Australian Defence Force there doing the same thing. But um, you know, things that? like that, just don't have that level of patriotism, obviously. So it's just something that they really love. It's part of their culture and their life that, that Defence Force is. And I think they've probably got people within our chain of command that consider it a job rather than uh, life passion. So there was no one there. And then uh, back to Australia on the 1st of January. Yeah. Jesus Christ, that's, that's what a story. I mean, um, when you came back, I mean, what was your attitude to life? I mean, you're, walking around, you're going around Australia, no yeah. one really understands what you've been through. Like yeah. they, they say they do, but they yeah, really yeah. don't. So do you feel, Angry with them? Do you, did you feel? No, nah, not really. Like, no, really. It's obviously in the hospital. We've got the, uh, the best treatment was here in Melbourne, the FWF yeah. Hospital in Richmond. So I had uh, two great doctors, uh, uh, Professor Martin Richardson, who's in the Navy himself. And I believe that after uh, he assisted me with orthopedics, he, a couple of years later, he actually went over Afghanistan himself. And he's also done a light in Papua New Guinea and third world countries, uh, training up those people. So it's just people who just really good people. There's people we should be proud that are in our community that go out of the way. That was, it was 1st of January, that was his New Year's. And he was, left his family lunch or dinner or whatever it was to, to come and help me. So you know, he'd be helpful for that. And, and same as Dr Nigel Mann, they were, they were fantastic. So they really got me up to a stage because I tell you now, in the first, first couple of months where you're not sure if you're gonna walk again, I had no intentions of being in the wheelchair, I can assure you. So it was, if I don't, I had a very clear suicide plan that if I didn't get back walking, this is how uh, you know, I've got a couple of months left, I'm done. So it's a, it's a transition that some people can make, some people can't. How long were you in hospital in Australia for? Four, four months. Four months we learned how to walk. So I had a, I had a, um, a staff, which is you know, a, a type of strain that's not in Australia. So you know, it's funny, we talk about pandemics now. Uh, whenever something new comes to Australia, that's how they treat it, like a pandemic. So I had a disease that wasn't in Australia and Australia didn't want to have in its hospital system. So I was bubble boy for about a month before they could even, you know, go anywhere to learn how to walk. Or, so it was just every day, just everyone's coming with gowns, just um, cleaning the wounds before I can guess you get on a surgery table. So that was, um, that wasn't the best. But then, you know, every, every day you just do little things. You started getting in the pool, um, starting to get active again. And then, then you start the, the process of learning how to walk. And it, it's, it's painful because you've got, Everyone, you know, as we, you know, we're all born with feet. And then, you know, imagine if you're, you're 30 years of age, you've built up Achilles and all the strength in your bones, you know, they're weight bearing. And then all of a sudden you've got a shin, which is no weight bearing, and then that's your impact. 
It would have been painful straight. all the time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you've got to get used to that. Your stunt's got to be able to settle. And luckily for me, I had some really good doctors who um, made a nice and clean cut um, that allows me to walk well today. So after four months, you came out. Yeah. And how long was it before you started working? Straight away. Straight back to my unit. So I think I was a part of a union that probably didn't have a lot back of... Back to the unit of, in the army? Yeah, straight back to the unit. Yeah. So what did you do there? So we went back just into a, a, in a training capacity, really. Yep. Um, Here so in Australia. Funny. Yeah, it was yeah. funny. Six weeks after I got out of hospital, I still had open wounds. They wanted me to go out field because they were short of soldiers. My, my wife went apeshit. I didn't go. <laughs> I was pretty happy. I was like, oh, it's my job. This is what I've got to go do. But um, she wasn't over happy with that, so I didn't go. But, um, yeah, went back there for a year and just had... <coughs> oh, sorry. Coughing. Just had some constant problems up there at Darwin that we couldn't resolve. And then, unfortunately, I had to have a second amputation, so I came back to Melbourne and stayed in Melbourne. So and it was then... Um, I think I was put into a transition. I think my unit really didn't know what to do, so they put me into a unit which was basically a discharge unit. You go there when you've got... You know, if you've got, for example, you've been there for 15 years and you've got six months long service leave and then you discharge, you've only got three months, I'll put you in that unit. So that's where my unit chucked me in there. Did you say second amputation? Yeah, that's correct, what, yeah. What, what happened with that? Yeah, just got some infections that were in there. And basically, because it blew the foot off and the Achilles, it was a long stump. So I don't know if you can see it on the camera here, but it doesn't allow for enough to have mechanics behind it. So you yeah. can imagine I'm down here, that's how deep my stump goes. It doesn't allow for this hydraulics. So unfortunately, I was just literally just had nothing, no spring, yeah, no yeah. nothing back. So I wasn't walking well, always in a lot of pain. So the determination was to yeah, have a second amputation and get some life quality back. So uh, just one last point of this, because I know we're on the first floor of the Fitz, best cafe and yeah, bar yeah. In, uh, in, uh, in, in, in Fitzroy. But uh, we're on the first floor and you just bolted up those stairs. I mean, you, you yeah. seem to be like to an average person walking down the street looking at you, they wouldn't say, oh, that person's missing a... Yeah, it just LA. looks like I've just um, pulled a hamstring or something like that and yeah. put it in a footy. I don't play footy, you see how fat I am, but um, <laughs> uh, definitely, um, I think it helps when you when you're in your supreme fitness level. When you're in Afghanistan, you get 60 kilos on your back and you're climbing massive mountains we don't have in Australia in, in heat and in, in, in extreme conditions and altitude. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you come back and then really got, you know, I had a choice to either, either die or walk. So I fucking wanted to walk. Um, so you worked hard during the rehab to try and give yourself an opportunity for a life. Mm. Yeah, so and that, and that obviously goes a long way to now, even though it's been 10 years, then the hard work I put in into rehab to learn how to walk has kept me well. Lawrence, when you, when you um, did your eight, you did eight months, you came back to Australia, how hard was it adjusting? Um, I mean, how did, you, how, how, how did you feel when you got off the plane? Um, did you just fit back into, you know, Australian life the way you had prior to going to Afghanistan or? Oh, um, yeah, I, I think I had it, had it pretty easy, you know, with, in comparison. Um, I think, uh, yeah, got back and went on leave and then went back to, went back to work. I think I had four weeks leave um, and went back to work to, um, back, in, back at Adelaide. So it was sort of um, good to come back and all that sort of stuff. It's a bit of a... Um, Bit of it, you know, you've got a lot of spare time that you didn't have before, and you go straight, yeah, straight on leave, really. <laughs> like, yeah, um, I think you'd like uh, when I came back, I think you did you do like a decompression, they call it. So you go to Almin Had, which I think is like four days, five days, um, spend some time there, 
and then you fly back to Australia and then I think you spend two or three days, I can't really remember, two or three days and you speak to, have all these debriefs um, about coming back to Australia, I can't even really remember them. And then you go on leave and you go back to your family and stuff like but that. But 99% of Australians wouldn't be able to jerry about what you've been through. I think... And um, Brenda's been through especially. Yeah. Um, ironically, probably Muslim Melburnians, Adam Brody, yeah. would probably know more about what you guys went through yeah. than people say around this area. Yeah. Um, did, was that hard to... I mean, let me ask you another question linked to that. When you hear fireworks on New Year's Eve, does that, like, trigger you? Uh, um, not, not, not me, did, no. Yeah. no. I, th I think... Um, like, one thing, I guess... Like, we're, I was... A, you know, you're a professional soldier, um, if that makes sense. So I... I think it was harder to transition out of the army because um, I, was, I was doing a job that I wanted to do. I was on leave you know, I'd just done something that I trained for that I wanted to do in that sense. Um, I think the worst thing, that the, it was harder for, when I came back, I, you know, the girl I was with at the time, I don't think I was with her at the time, I thought I was, but I wasn't. Um, she, like, you know, we, we parted ways and that was a hell of a lot harder than anything and that, that would have happened anyway because I was a bit of a prick, but... <laughs> Yeah. The, um, the Australian troops come back from Iraq, Afghanistan, Timor, wherever it might be. Um, Post-traumatic stress syndrome. You've got 500 Australian troops have killed themselves. Yep. Vets have killed themselves since 2001. It's a huge... That's two, two a month, basically, at the moment. Um, the British Army is twice the size of the Australian Army and they've only had 300 suicides in the same period. So it's, it's a huge issue yep. and under a lot of pressure... Um, obviously, the Royal Commission has been established in April of this year. So why do you think... What, what drives troops, vets, to suicide? Well, there's, there's, there's multiple, and I think that's why the Royal Commission's required. If there was, if there was, a, single, there was a simple science to it, we'd fix it. Yeah. You know, we're fighters, we'd, we'd fight for the information, and that's what we're doing with the Royal Commission. We're fighting information while they're doing it. Well, so give us a few been, of those reasons, like, in your opinion. So, like... Yeah, obviously, there's, there's a couple of key ones. The one is a lot of people have sustained injuries in, in Defence Force, and those injuries are hard. So you've got people who, especially in infantry or combat corps, what they are is they're labourers. And then all of a sudden, they're 30 years of age and their body's failing them. They can't get a labour job in the civilian world. So they're, they're, they're left lost. You know, they're, they're in a transition period where... You know, they probably haven't got the financial backing to go back and do any other education. You know, they're, they're too proud to go back and to share accommodation. And they get themselves in some really bad financial situations because they can't earn the income that they needed to, to do it. So some people don't want to also live with the injuries they've got. I know the last, last bloke that, um, the last mate that we served with, that I served with, that killed himself, that was, that was the end of it. So, um, you know, Craig... Obviously, he considered that the best part of his life was over. Um, he wasn't going to be able to continue with sports and the way that he lived his life. And he, he assumed, or we assumed that the, the thing that he had to do to make himself happy or all these new skill sets that he'd have to, to obtain in life to be happy, he wasn't prepared to climb it. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's tough. So, you know, unfortunately, I'm probably at the stage where that many people would know of have committed suicide. I'm at the stage where I probably think that you, know, you, you, you cope with it by saying that it was their choice. You know, you, it's a shit thing to say, and you say that to someone in the civilian when they talk about military, and they're shocked by it. And they go, well, you know, have, you know, must be something wrong. What can we do to stop it? 
And, and there's a lot of things. And I think, the, I think the ADF needs to have a really good look at itself as well. So there's a lot of things wrong with the ADF that creates a problem. So I think a lot of people get back there and they give DVA or any of the counselling services some bad raps. But at the end of the day, those people are helping after they got out of Defence Force. If you didn't need help, then you know, they wouldn't be seeking it. So those organisations wouldn't be required. Mm -hmm. So the problem is, I think, a lot of it is in the ADF. Well, you've also got... You know, we, we spoke about earlier basic training, about 80 days of training you had to be a soldier. But when you discharge, you've got a three-day transition seminar and then you're back on leave. So you, you've got, there's this massive disparity there. And regardless of if you're, you're, you're discharging for, for medical reasons or you're discharging um, voluntarily, um, oftentimes a lot of the things that you don't consider within that discharge process, within that transition, are the things that are most important to you in that job role. You know, it's that self-worth, it's that, self that purpose, that sense of you're part of something that's much bigger than yourself, and that you know that you're with a whole bunch of dudes, um, that you're all on the same page. You know, you've all got, you might, be, you might have different, similar, different experiences growing up, but you've all got similar experiences now. And then you leave and you sort of, you, you, you get back and then there's a lot of isolation. And there's a lot of, um, like I remember, like the idea of a job interview at first was really challenging for me because it's sort of, it's in, in, in the military, you don't have really job interviews. It's sort of, you know, you've got, your, you've got all of your PARs and your fitness assessments. You've got all of this sort of stuff and, yep, sweet, you can do that course or you can't. So there's a massive cultural gap, an absolutely massive cultural gap. And that lack of understand, that, that lack of, I guess, the ability to have that goal orientation. In the Army, everything is structured in such a way that it's quite easy to set a goal. It's quite, you know what to do to achieve that goal, whether it's a course or a selection program or whatever. You, there's, there's gateways that you know how to cross them. But you get out into the civilian world and even first year university, no one's telling you or helping you or mentoring you or anything like that. And diggers aren't dumb people. But if you're in an environment for five, 10, 15 years and then you come out of that environment, it, it, can be, it can be a really confusing place and it doesn't, take, it doesn't take all that many failures at times to feel like a failure. So what we, what we need to do is sort of focus more on, uh, on that understanding, that cultural understanding. The British have got a much, much greater um, idea of what their military is to them. Same with the, uh, same with the US. Um, the US, like a lot of guys. Yeah. They've got, they got a different, yeah. different business model as well. So I yeah. think one of the good things that the British do well, especially with leadership, is to keep them relevant. So in Australia, Defence Force, you have quite often people who have spent 30, 35 years in Defence Force, they've got no relevance left. They've got no leadership. They've got no skills that can be able to pass on to the next generation. The British moves them on. You have a certain amount of years in Defence Force to get your career and then say your time's up. But because they know your time's up, they start that transition period and they do it really well. They thank people for their series. So what happens there, you have a continuous change in hierarchy and promotion. So what that does, we always talk about people getting out of the Defence Force with mental health. Mental health doesn't exist in the fucking army. So you know, if you've got log jams in the ch chain of command and the leadership is poor, what you've got is a disciplined culture. So me and you work in construction, for example. Imagine if one bloke's five minutes late on a construction site and the supervisor goes up there and says, you're not going home this weekend, you're not seeing your kids, you're not seeing your family, you're not getting it paid. Your teeth's going to get knocked out and you're probably going to get a picture of your dog. The Defence Force, that's normal. So there's a culture where there's no fucking leadership in regards to, you know, they train you during a training course, 
But in regards to positive thinking, positive reinforcement, that doesn't exist. It's, it's you will do this or this is the consequence. So when you build that culture where everything is fear, 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 eventually people's anxiety is going to get to a certain point where they go, fuck the ADF, and they're not the happy people when they get out. They're broken because they joined the Australian Defence Force with good intentions. They wanted to serve. They wanted to serve this nation. They wanted integrity, mateship and teamwork. And too many units in the Australian Defence Force, it doesn't exist. You've got a disciplined culture because the leaders aren't relevant to you know, the 20th century. They're stuck doing things that they did in the 1940s, disciplined from the 1940s, 1940s mentality, and it's just not working. Uh, and there's people in the Australian Defence Force that need to have a good look at themselves. And one of them is the CDF. So I had a run in with him uh, two years What's ago. What's the CDF? The, the Chief of Defence Force. So yeah. I, I cut up with, with um, Campbell a couple of years ago. I was in a veteran employment in, in Canberra. And I asked him pretty squarely how many, how many people who have lost their lives, how many widows, mothers, amputees or quadriplegics, the people under your command, do you keep up with? And his answer was none. And it just shows that his mentality, where he gets on TV, and he talks about things that should be better. He talks about leadership. In the, the day, leadership starts at him, and I don't think it goes too far. So, it's in, so before you leave, the ADF's got to lift their game. Well, yeah, That's it's the got to well, yeah. the organisation. Yeah, yeah. I hope the part of this Royal Commission actually sees that in regards to there's no positive thinking. You, you make a mistake in the army, everyone hates you for it. Your, your section hates it because the section gets gets punished for it. So it's it's a it's a it's a punishment mentality, um, and it's an unusual business model. What can happen is. You know, when we talk about the British, you know, the transition where they, where they go through a certain amount of years and keep their, their chain of command inspired and relevant, you know, in, this, in the Australian Defence Force, you, got, you can have people who, you know, they've done their bit, but they're old majors now. They're not capable of being leaders anymore, but they've got a rank that says they're a leader and they demand leadership, even though they can't perform it. And their job is, you know, it might be to do logistics on the slouch hat. Nothing to do with war, completely irrelevant. But the ADF will pay that person 130000 and give him a major's house. The corporal, which is on ground, leading his men into battle where they could lose their life or limbs, is on 65000 and gets half the entitlements of the Doak Femera. So you got, imagine doing that in the civilian world. It's a completely different business model. The bloke that's doing fuck all and the bloke that's busting his chops, uh, massive pay grab difference. And this person here is stopping the transition that this person gets for his career progression. So it just doesn't work. But the ADF really needs to have a little look at how it structures its hierarchy and actually start getting positive thinking in regards to soldiers because the discipline is not relevant to how kids in this society are raised. Now, I've, I grew up in a military family, so discipline was, you know, you know Pop was always kids just to be seen, not to be heard. That was his mentality. And me and Pop, we had a great relationship. You know, I knew exactly where my boundaries were. If I pissed him off, he clocked one over the head. If you didn't do it, you know, you got a lolly. So that's just the way that life went. But you know, a lot of people don't grow up in that society. So when they get into the Defence Force, they want teamwork. You know, some people would join the Defence Force because they want a sense of adventure. They want to make new friends. They want to start their life. And then all of a sudden they get in there and they've just got people young one more time. You know, they're two minutes late. There's, you're not getting paid this weekend. Or, nah, you're on guard duty, your weekend's gone. You know, it's just, it's just, it's discipline for the purpose of discipline because they can't lead men. There's just too many people in there in that defence force and the model that leadership is poor. Are you going to present to the Royal Commission? Are you going to say some of that stuff? Um, if I'm after. Yeah. yeah. And, and when soldiers get out, I mean, how do you rate the Department of Veteran Affairs? They get $13 billion of taxpayers' money every year. 
And also, what do you think of the RSL? I mean, I suppose to an outsider, they'd be like the union for, for soldiers. Like, I'm, I'm a CFMU member, and I've got a union that sort of looks after us. You yeah. get good pay and good conditions, but yeah, yeah. I wonder if the RSL, they spend a lot of time on the, you know, looking after the pokey operations, whether they... I mean, are you happy with their performance? Um, and also, as I say, Department of Veteran Affairs, what do you think of their performance looking after soldiers that have come out of the Army? Yeah, I think the RSL needs to pick its game up when it comes to advocating for veterans, when it comes to advocating like what Brendan's talking about. The, the, the RSL should be saying that. They should be knocking on their doors. You know, the RSL should be knocking on... Um, it should be two-way street. They should be looking inwards and they should be looking outwards. They should be able, you should be able to walk into any RSL in the country and say, I've just gotten out of defence and I want to be a trader or I want to be a lawyer, and they say, all right, cool, we've got these pathways for each. And they've hooked each. up with employers that could, yeah. That'd be great. Yeah. That'd be great. There are some sub-branches that do that, without a doubt, but it needs, it needs to start higher. You've got a lot of really well-intentioned, really good-intentioned people within the RSL, but, um, but they, once again, are lacking leadership um, within, from, from higher. So if we get well, that right... Yeah, it's all great for me at the start, the RSL, and they, they actually, just full stop, they've been... They're being good, to, good, good to me. It's just that um, you know sometimes we uh, now that I'm getting involved with it for the Hawthorne RSL, you, you start to see um, some financial outcomes of the RSL, and it's not that you want to uh, have a go with the people that, that's in charge of it, the board there, but you just hope that they can start to listening to um, the generations coming through and just say that you know pokies one, they're a bad thing for society, and two, they're not making your money. So you need to get out of that business model. You know, work with um, stakeholders such as the government and work out an exit strategy and also a manner that you can get some remuneration to look after soldiers. They still need that remuneration level, but get it in a way that's, one, sustainable, and two, is not detrimental to society. You're both in Hawthorne RSL and they don't have pokies. No. no. So how, what do they, how do they survive financially? Yes, in? we sell poppies. sell poppies, sell Anzac badges. That's how we operate and we obviously, you know, we... We've branched out. We've got uh, vending machines on construction sites, um, which is great from the you know, companies uh, uh, Westgate Tunnel, Mordialic um, Bypass, thanks to those projects for accepting us on there. And then from there, you know, it's, it's not big money, but what it is, every single dollar of it that we make out of it goes straight to veterans. There's no big administration. There's no via Tabcorp. There's no one else gets their fingers on that dollar. It's a dollar that goes into account. It's a dollar that goes to a veteran and it's administered by volunteers. So. I think that's the best part about it. So we, I think we, I'm the treasurer. So you know, we've, you know, we got about seventy or eighty thousand of income over the last year. And if you look at the financial statements of pokies, venues, venues out there, they're in the millions of losses. So they couldn't operate. They still had to pay for licences. They've lost millions. And we've got a very basic model, and we're probably the best performing state ranch out there. It's, it's scary. And that's that. That's uh, that's utilising the membership. You know, that's that treasurer is Brendan's the treasurer. Um, it didn't fall into that position. That, that was that was. You're a veteran. You're a, um, you're an accountant. You've got the skill set. So let's use it. Let's use the community that we've got to build the community that we've got as well. Uh. Yeah, we've got some good things. Veteran construction obviously works out of us. We've got a lot of guys on construction sites. We're about 25 guys into work. Um, and whenever some guys about, comes to yeah, us and he's struggling yeah. for work, you know, we've got 180 defence members. We try and network and get that bloke a job, and then it's. That's what the RSL is, is supposed to do. Is, you know, what we want to advocate is, is that if a veteran goes in there, and especially if they're looking for help, you don't want to... Like, and it's not the, the person who's at the front option. It's not their fault ever. They're a civilian employee. They're a receptionist. Uh, they're working quite often for 
the pokey venue, they're looking at tab licenses and stuff like that. Please sign in here. And then you're trying to find a veteran, you find there's none there. All you've got is these ding, 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 ding. There's no uh, veteran spaces in there and there's no assistance. And they just walk away. And it's, it's one thing that Lucas Moon always says is veterans that joins the RSLs don't kill themselves. So for every fucking bloke that gets pushed away from an RSL because it's not welcoming, because it's not what they expect, it's not what they have heard about from their grandparents and parents who serve at the RSL they were a part of, mm. uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a veteran that could potentially kill themselves. Uh, to give you an idea, it's not a, a, a suicide event, but uh, my, my pop passed away uh, two years ago. He was a member of the Geelong RSL for something like 30 odd years. So he didn't go there very often, frequent there, but he went there at the Vietnam vet days. He paid his due days, he was a financial member. So I rang up the RSL seeking to have his funeral, his wake, at the back of the Geelong RSL. Um, they told us they had to come in, fill out a form, and then pay 360 bucks, and I'll be put on a waiting list. I didn't fill out that fucking form. I ain't going in there. I went to a pub around the corner after Dad's funeral. So that's where, that's the welcoming of the RSL that you have to be, a, you'll be a member for 32 years, you pay your dues, and then all of a sudden you have to go on a waiting list to use a shitty little room at the back of a bowls club, which has got, let's be honest, some of these RSLs now have six dollar plaques posted on the wall. They're fucking disgusting. They don't know where the memorabilia is, but they obviously lost the direction where they were going looking after veterans. And I reckon if you had to wake in there, you'd probably feel bad because you're running around, there's pokies going in the background, there's people swearing, carrying on, and you've got a dirty old cafe over there, and then you're at a bowls club. So where the fuck does that resonate with an RSL? It would be, probably wouldn't have been proud to be fucking at his wake in there. So we had it in the pub. And the no. RSL was just going to lift this game. We can get back to it, though. Right. You talked about Lucas Moon. He's like, he's like the head of a reform movement within the RSL in Victoria. Is that, I mean, that's... Oh, yeah, I don't know if he's part of a reform group, but he, he's pushing for change. So I think, yeah. you know, two years ago before Lucas started being involved with the RSL, uh, he's done a great amount of work, especially from a volunteer. Mm. At the end of the day, he's gotten people thinking about different business models. We've got people critiquing financials that never have. You know, RSL have had 30 years, but no one has dared go back and say, RSL, what the fuck are you doing? Mm. And all of a sudden, they've got a bloke there, and it, not only he's got, you know, he's got some good politicians following him and following his, his way that he wants to run, uh, not run, but how he wants to be able to change the RSL and, and the current focus, which is one-dimensional. And he's done so from a bloke that's got a full-time job, got three, three kids himself, and in his spare time, he's advocating um, for a Royal Commission and trying to change the RSL. So he's getting a bit of pushback. So it's not a reform group, but he's definitely getting pushback from um, the members within Anzac House on a personal level that don't want to engage with him, I don't believe, or he doesn't want to engage with them, one of the two. <laughs> um, but there is definitely a, um, a change that um, needs to occur. Uh, we don't, I don't know. I don't know exactly which business model to go, but I'd love to see the actual financials and get hold of it and say, right, where can we take this organisation? Because in the last, let's be honest, since Ruxton's gone, you look at clubs like the RSA, RSAV Club, they've got resorts out there, they've got massive golf clubs, they've expanded. Where has RSL Victoria gone for 20 years? I'll tell you where it's gone backwards. It's sold assets that were less for us from World War One and World War II diggers. It's in a terrible financial situation at the moment and it's going nowhere. It's like it's earning millions every year and it's selling clubs, and because the land is worth so much in Innocent Melbourne, to pay for losses of pokies. It is going nowhere. It's just going round and round and round, but it's constricting itself. It is absolutely going nowhere. And if you're going nowhere financially, 
I don't care who you are, you're not going to be able to advocate the appropriate level that's required for current veterans. I suppose if vets are killing themselves at once, one every fortnight, there's something wrong with the RSL and the culture within the army, and that hopefully the Royal Commission cheers yeah. this up and creates yeah. some change. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Um, Lawrence, if you were able to talk to yourself the day before you signed up for the army back in the day, what would you say to yourself? Would you still do it? Um, would you have done anything different? Um, what would you say to some kid your age from Swinburne Uni who's yeah. thinking of joining the army? I mean. What, it, after yeah. the experiences that you've been through? Uh, yeah, 100%, I'd do it again, um, 100%. I think um, the only differences I would make would be uh, probably just better planning on, uh, on some of those bigger transition points of my life. Um, probably you know, review those a little bit more, use the skill sets that I used on a daily basis and use them for my life, I would have thought that. <laughs> that's, you know, that's probably what I'd do. Um, yeah, because you know, I think, I think for me personally, I think you know the the army provided me with a with a with a great amount of skill, um, and gave me a, a good a good perception. Came came with its bad, but you got to weigh, weigh that up with it, you know, with the good as well. But um, yeah, planning, preparation. Brendan, you've sacrificed a lot. Um, I mean, what 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 would you say to a kid who's thinking of joining the army today? Would you yeah. encourage it, notwithstanding all yeah, the yeah, cultural issues you've raised yeah. about the army? And the I'd ask the question. You know, I, I think quite often the recruitment, you know, they're a very civilian organisation nowadays that recruits in the Defence Force. You know, their job is to get you know, kids into the army, promote them. So you, you actually got to reach out and find out what the kid wants to do in life. What's his background? What's, sort of, what's his mentality situation right? So you can direct him in the right core. Mm. Um, I wouldn't direct anyone to go to artillery. <laughs> my time again, it's like stay well away. Um, but there are some good career paths for kids out there, but they've got to make sure that they think about what they're going to do when they get out. Yeah. So if you're 21 years of age and all you want to do is go and be an infantry soldier, realise when you get to 30, putting 60 kilos in your back ain't going to be fun. Humping up hills is not going to be fun. You know, it's a young man's game. Just make sure that when you go into the Defence Force, you know what you're going to get out of it and then work out what you're going to be doing when your time's up. Because if you don't plan it, you'll be stuck. And even if some of the people do plan, I planned it well. I thought I'd had a, you know, I still had the Bachelor of Commerce. Um, I did a couple of other small courses. And when I got out of the Defence Force, I applied for maybe, gee, six, seven hundred jobs. I was unemployed for seven months. I just couldn't get a look in, whether it's some people just automatically presume because you've got a physical injury, you've got a mental illness, and then wouldn't give me an opportunity. But even myself, like I was, I was 34, you know, half decent head on me. It was in, the brain, not the book, <laughs> uh, but definitely um, uh, it was tough. So you got to be able to, to plan that. You, there's no lack of planning can go into it in regards to what you're going to do when you get out. You know, we're not the US. Obviously, I was part of Invictus Games and I've done some paraskeleton stuff around the world. When you're in those environments, the, the US have days where employees come onto the base. They'll have the police force, ambulance, fire brigade. They all come to the base and they recruit. They say, if you want to join, here's the that doesn't floor. happen here come here you come to the australian defense force they're so keen on keeping people because good people get out because of the lack of leadership that i talked about before you know if you're a good bloke and you're, you're half switched on you've got a cranky old sergeant that's an absolute dipshit you're not going to stick around for three or four years you're going to get to the next stage of your life that guy's in my way i'm out and then from there you know the adf doesn't want to leave them so they're going to bring in employees uh, or employment programs um, to take away the good soldiers, and that's the way the ADF thinks. It thinks about more re retaining soldiers and preparing for the next stage of life. Yeah.
and that, that's what well, that's what it should you know I the, the best form of recruitment is being able to walk into an RSL and see a bunch of veterans there who have got successful post-service careers. Yeah. If, if I w walked in and I saw that, I'd go, yeah. I'd Rather than just ping-pinging of the hockey yeah. machines. Best form of recruitment, I could say. Yeah. Uh, we should be doing it. Well, you know, it's just been fascinating meeting you too, and I just think that your story is, especially, you know, what you've been through, it's really inspirational, and hopefully anyone out there who's a vet who's feeling a bit shit about themselves at the moment what listen to you two tonight. Hopefully it'll uh, lift their spirits and they'll hook up, if nothing else, then with the Hawthorne RSL, because... I know that you guys down there are doing amazing work. Yeah. And, um, River. And, yeah. yeah. Social media yeah. and all the, all the good stuff. Yeah. 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 So, so if, if somebody out there wants to hook up with you and talk to... Yeah, it's great. Yeah, the Hawthorne RSL, so we've got two advocates. Any blokes out there have a lot of injuries. And, and uh, we always say to blokes, you, know, you put the paperwork in sooner you get out of the Defence Force, because you're out for 20 years, it's going to be hard to pin that injuries you've sustained the Army back on the Army. You know, DVA is a system. You know, they do some really good work, the DVA. They've got a tough system they need to be able to administer. But if you've got, you're 55 and you've carried something for 20 years, when that really hits you when you're in the 50s, you know, the odds are the ADF has got to, let's say DVA has got to look at it and go, what have you done for the last 20 years that could have aggravated or caused that injury? Because we don't, you know, we don't want to pay it out. You know, we've got, you know, we've got 13 billion, but a lot of it's exhausted already on the, on the current care. So, you know, that's the system. So we always say, get that sorted, get that side of your life out of the way. We'll do that for you. It's a, it can be a minefield out there. We've got some, We've got free advocates. We've got about five welfare people, yourself being. We'll put the link up at the end of the show yeah, as well. It's if have a look at Hawthorne yeah, RSL, yeah. jump up there, and if you need to, jump on there. It just looks like a very basic inquiry. Send it. Press on the button, write down. Yeah. You might be just wanting to catch up with some veterans you haven't for a long time. Yeah. Say g'day. We're friends with the, um, the Veteran Motorcycle Club. Now, if you're out there, you like a, like a, for a ride, you might want to join that aspect of it. Um, there's other RSLs that we could. Um, Meet you. There's some really good RSLs out there. The fourth one's too far away. We say, hey, go to these guys. These are good guys. Yeah. And we might even give them a call and they'll give you a buzz. So, yeah. you know, well, it's just all touch and base. That's all it is. I really hope the Royal Commission gets you everything that you just want because you deserve it. And um, yeah, good luck over the next few weeks and months. Thanks. Brendan Dover, Lawrence Quinn, thanks for coming on the show, Cheers. man. Thanks, Cheers. Thank you. Thank you.